it started with one, one, and continued with many, with many. Lives reborn, reborn. The fearful made courageous to march against the gates of hell, hell, to trample them, trample them. We are heroes who have been sent. You know, drugs and alcohol. Uh, you know, I never used one without the other. The drugs were the closest thing for that adrenaline rush for me of throwing somebody out. You know, the ball's hit, you get under it, the crowd's starting to build, the guy's tagging, the whole plate's being created in front of you. And then when he's out and the roar of the crowd and that adrenaline rush you get. When baseball wasn't there, that's what, that's what that did for me. And that's what got me addicted so quickly. Growing up, I was I was really good at sports. You know, that's all I ever wanted to do. And that's all my life focused around was playing and being a part of a team. I got drafted after high school to play professional baseball. Did really well. And you know, I had more money than I ever wanted to have. Um, you know, my parents were, were there watching me play. It was a dream come true for me. So me and my parents, um, on the way home from a spring training game, got in a car accident. Um, a dump truck ran a red light as we were turning left and plowed into us. The two things I really knew in life, baseball and my parents, were taken away from me at the same time. Um, so I had to find somewhere I could turn where I felt comfortable. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but I got tattoos. And I started getting tattoos and hanging out at you know, the parlor all day. And the people there, they were good people. They just made bad choices. Uh, that's where I was introduced to my first drug and my first drink. I went down a path of destruction. You know, I actually got suspended from baseball. And it wasn't because of anybody else, it was because of the way I was living, the choices I was making. Everything in my life up until this point, I could do them all. I didn't need help from anybody. I was good at everything. And this, the drugs and the alcohol, I couldn't stop doing it. And I wanted to do more. And it was it was just it was, it was chaos. You know, there was this guy in a suit, dark suit, and you know, I was I was fighting him. And you know, I know I, I know it was the devil because I was fighting him and beating him and knocking him down and, and he just had this cold smirk on his face and he just kept getting up and coming after me and coming after me and you know I was to the point where I was worn out and I, and I couldn't fight anymore and I woke up it scared me so bad that I got up out of my bed <laughs> went across the hallway to my grandmother's room knocked on the door and said grandma she said yeah I said I had a bad dream and I said, can I, can I sleep with you? That's a 25-year-old man asking if he can get in the bed with his grandmother. And uh, 
you know, she welcomed me in. And the next night, I asked God. I said, I said, I need help. I said, I, I, I've been trying to do this so long that I can't do it anymore. I can't, I can't try anymore. I said, because I fell on my own. You do with me what you want to do with me. But I surrendered. And I noticed the Bible at the end of the bed. And I started just looking through it. And the verse that caught my eye was James 4, 7. It says, humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And that's exactly what I did. Within six months, I had the same exact dream again. You know, I was knocking him down and, and beating him and hitting him. And um, he stood up and he just looked at me. And I looked to my side and I didn't see Jesus, but I knew he was standing beside me because we started chasing the devil. And I never woke up feeling more calm and at peace than I ever have. It's a cool story. I can remember uh, watching Josh Hamilton play when he played for the Charleston River Dogs uh, here in town, and we went down to a game, and I saw him make the most incredible uh, play I've ever seen an outfielder make, the one he described in the video. He caught a ball in deep center field and threw a guy out at home and just going, oh, my gosh, this guy is incredible. He's going to go far. And then I can also remember watching as his life kind of began to unravel uh, in front of the public and as he began to just be tied up to addiction and decisions that he made that he talked about on the video. And I can remember thinking, you know what, this guy is not likely to change. I mean, I've seen this story play out time and time again, and, and it rarely ends well, you know, when someone gets tied up in some of, some of that stuff and just thinking this guy's probably not going to change. Do you know anybody like that, that uh, maybe in your life you're friends with, it may not be addiction, it may be that they're so set in their ways, but that you go, you know what, they're just probably not the most likely person to change. In fact, I want, you to, I want all of us to kind of think about for a minute, try to bring to mind the person in your life that you would say is the least likely person to convert to maybe following Christ, maybe the least likely person that would show up and be sitting next to you in church next weekend, and just try to bring that person to your mind. You may even want to write that person down on your outline sheet, just so you remember, and we'll get back to talking about that in just a minute. I do want to welcome you, though, to Seacoast. Glad that you're here. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us at one of our campuses. Maybe you're uh, on the internet. Maybe you're at the chapel uh, this morning. We're glad that you're here as well. Uh, my name is Josh Surratt, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Long Point campus. And uh, I got to tell you, it is an honor for me every time I get the opportunity to stand before you uh, and, and hopefully teach some of God's word. But um, just glad, glad to be here and glad that you guys are here uh, with us as well. A couple of years ago, it's actually been a few years now, Lisa and I uh, started working at a restaurant uh, here in town. And as we got involved in the restaurant industry, we started to meet some very interesting people. Uh, and one of them that we met at this restaurant, her name was, we'll call her Kelly. Uh, and Kelly was a, just a very interesting girl, very loud, very uh, friendly, outgoing, life of the party kind of girl, but also the definition of wild child. I mean, just a, a crazy wild girl. She would always be the last one there at the bar after work and uh, just, but also very engaging. And I remember when I first, you know, about maybe two or three weeks into working there, uh, found out what 
Kelly did for, see, Kelly worked two jobs, like a lot of people do in the restaurant industry. She would work our job. Uh, she was a bartender at our restaurant. And then when she would get off there at about 10, 11 o'clock at night, she would go down to another kind of bar downtown and do another kind of service. Um, let's just say she was a server by day, stripper by night. And so kind of surprised me. Uh, I, I lived a pretty sheltered life, so I didn't have a whole lot of friends in that industry at that point in time. And, and I kind of had some preconceived ideas of what somebody in that industry might look like, and that kind of shed some light on that. This was not, not what I, Kelly was not the kind of person I expected to be in that. But as soon as I heard that, I'm just going to confess to you guys, I kind of, I don't know if you can relate to this, uh, as new, some, somewhat new Christians at the time, we sort of knew we wanted to reach out to the people that we worked with. We wanted to uh, hopefully share Christ with them, share our lives with them, and, and build relationships, bring them to church. And as soon as I found out that Kelly was a stripper, I kind of put her on the probably not list, if you know what I mean. I mean, I'd write it down, but I kind of had this, these are, there's some people that maybe would be likely candidates, and then there's some people that would be uh, probably not. I don't think that it's probably ever going to happen. Do you have anybody like that? Maybe they're like Kelly. Maybe it's like Josh, but it, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not a drug addiction or a, a stripper. Maybe it's just someone who is so dead set on what they believe that they're just not likely to change. It could be a college professor that you had. I know I had several of those. It could be a, a, a friend um, a coworker that you've worked with. It could be a family member. Maybe you're married to that person and you've been praying for change for a long time, but you're just starting to give up hope, starting to think it might not be possible. Could be a father, could be a child uh, who has kind of gone, gone wayward in their uh, youth. But whatever it is, I want you, again, I want you to just think about that person and try to get specific with somebody in mind. Because it kind of brings us to the real question that we're going to talk about today. Can that person really be changed? I mean, can people change? Can you take a, a bad man and turn him into a good man? I mean, is it really possible to take a sinful woman and turn her into something lovely and admirable? Well, what about relationships? Can they be changed? I mean, is it possible to take a broken, shattered relationship with, with no sign of hope and turn it into something that's as good as new or maybe even better than new? Is it possible for the incurable to be cured? These are the kinds of questions that we're going to talk about this morning. See, the guy that we're talking about today in Acts chapter 9 is a guy that would have been on any of our lists if we were in the early church, uh, not a likely candidate for change at all. In fact, this is a guy that uh, nobody was probably even thinking would even attempt to do it because he was so set in his ways. If you grew up in church, it's a pretty familiar story. We're going to be talking about Saul. Guy named Saul, he, and we're going to talk about his conversion on the Damascus Road. Let's review a little bit. It's a huge passage of scripture uh, for us as a church and for the church in general. But uh, we're in a series called uh, Sent. And if you're uh, new, we've been looking through the book of Acts. And here's what's happened so far. In the beginning of Acts chapter 1, Jesus uh, ascends to heaven. He's already resurrected from uh, death. He appears to the disciples and he ascends from heaven and he tells them something in Acts 1 8, which has kind of been our anchor verse for this entire series. It's been, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is established, and incredible stuff starts happening. The, the early church begins to form. In the next couple of chapters, they start to experience some persecution. Some of the Jewish leaders, some of the Roman leaders start to persecute the church. Uh, so we see that happening. And then uh, in chapter 5, you guys remember Ananias and Sapphira. That's kind of the inside corruption starts to happen. These guys both drop dead at the offering boxes. I've noticed you guys have been a little bit shy at the offering boxes lately. I don't know if it, yeah, no, not really. 
And then after that, uh, chapter 7, we have our first martyr. I mean, the intensity is starting to, to increase big time. Uh, Stephen is martyred, and that's where we first meet this guy, Saul. We, we don't know much about his involvement, but we know that Saul was there at the martyr of Stephen. He heard Stephen's words that he preached in his last message, and then he kind of approved and oversaw this stoning of Stephen. So this guy is an unlikely candidate for change. Many theologians call this the most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what we're going to talk about today. Because if Saul had stayed the course that he was on, if he had remained a Jewish rabbi, we'd be missing 13 out of 27 books of the New Testament. And Christianity never would have spread to the Gentiles there in the early days, which eventually paved the way for it to be spread to us. So how does a guy like that change? Well, let's look at it together. I want to I just look through this, the passage of Scripture and make a couple of observations about how change might be able to happen as we look at the conversion of Saul. The conversion of Saul shows me that, first of all, God can transform the most unlikely people. God can transform the most unlikely people. Look at the first uh, shot that we get of Saul. It's in Acts chapter 8, actually, uh, verse 3. And it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that's, that's his deal. That's, that's how we meet him. Not a great first impression for me anyways. Wouldn't go on a second date there. Uh, but uh, th- then in the next chapter, one chapter later, which is where we're going to be spending our time. If you have your Bibles, you may want to kind of open up to Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you have them on your, your phones or whatever, you're welcome to use that. Uh, here's what it says there. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is basically Christianity. It hadn't been, that, that term hadn't been coined yet. But if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's breathing threats. And I've never met anybody that breathed murder, but apparently this guy was doing it. He was on a mission, and his mission was to put an end to this movement that had started that was around this guy, Jesus Christ. And he probably felt like he could do it. Here's a couple things I know about Saul. One thing I know, Saul was a a religious radical. A religious radical. I would liken him to a religious terrorist of of today. I mean, extremely, extremely religious. He was blameless according to the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's very zealous for the faith of his fathers. And he believed that what he was doing was right. He believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was right. Second thing I know about him, he was well-educated. The Bible says that he trained at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel, who was one of the best teachers of the day in Israel. Uh, So what that tells me is he had a great education. I'd liken him to a, a Harvard grad, very smart, very intelligent, knew what he believed and was able to articulate it well. The third thing I know is he was ambitious extremely ambitious. You know, he was advancing very quickly up the ranks. He was climbing the, the pharisaical ladder, if you will, very, very aggressively. He had ability, desire, and talent that was far beyond any of his peers. He was at the top of his class, not just opposed to the gospel, not just kind of casually against it, but dead set on putting an end to it. And I also know that Saul was full of bitterness and hatred. He was full of bitterness and hatred. He hated anything and anyone who could be a threat to the things that he believed to be true. Hated anybody who might be speaking 
what he believed was heresy, anything that might go against the traditions of his father, the, the law of Moses, any of that, just absolutely hated it. He hated those who preached against the law. He, he was so dead set in his beliefs. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, it's unfortunate. There are, there are a lot of people in church today who would call themselves Christ followers who look a lot like Saul in terms of being deeply religious and, and dead set in their ways, not, not willing to, um, to, to build a relationship with, with somebody who didn't believe the way that they thought. So how does someone like this so dead set change? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. It says uh, he's on his way to Damascus, remember, to persecute the church. It says, Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Wow. Can you imagine what happened on the Damascus road? I I, I mean, if you guys have been around the church very long, you've heard people share their testimony. Uh, I found it interesting in church world, testimonies have a way, they're kind of like fish stories. They grow and grow and grow the further you get from the, the transition moment, you know what I mean? Like you got someone who was, you know, had, had a good story, were not following God and then came into a relationship with Jesus and, and before you know it, that story is just crazy. You know, they were evil, they were atheists, they didn't believe, they, they robbed a bank, they killed three people and then they committed their lives to Christ by, by gunpoint in Jamaica on a beach or something. You know, it just gets crazy. It happens, I'm telling you, if you're new to the church, just hang out long enough. It happens. It's wild. This should be evidence that God doesn't need. We, we, we kind of feel like we have to help God. You know, the, the more dramatic our story, the better God looks, right? He doesn't need our help. This right here is the ultimate testimony. Nobody's going to top this one. Anybody been blinded by Jesus himself? No, has not happened. This is incredible. I mean, he is on his way. This guy is, is on his way to persecute the church and a light shines from heaven and blinds him. Jesus himself shows up. How did Paul change? Saul, who would later become Paul? I believe the only explanation for this turnaround is the power of God. It's the Acts 1-8 power that Jesus talked about. You know, God knew that Saul wasn't going to be debated into conversion. You know, Saul wasn't going to watch an inspiring video and be, be inspired to change. Saul needed a face-to-face encounter with the living God. And you know what, the person you wrote down on your sheet, they do too. I believe they do too. Who are some modern day Saul's today? Can we just do some what if thinking? Uh, I was thinking about this. Who, who are some people in our lives today that we would go, man, if they change, that would be incredible. Uh, first person that came to my mind was a guy named Bill Maher. Do you know who Bill Maher is? Uh, Bill does a, he has an HBO show and uh, he's made his living, made his fame and fortune on basically mocking Christianity. He calls uh, Jesus the Jewish zombie. He says that Christianity is a fairy tale. The God of the Old Testament, he calls an unreliable role model. Just very, very uh, sarcastic and very, very against anything uh, that, that we would read about in the Bible. Think about a guy like, can you imagine if he changed what that would do to maybe some people who watch him and look up to him as a role model? Of course, there's a very extreme example that some of you may have already thought about. What about Osama bin Laden? 
I mean, can you imagine if Osama bin Laden had a Damascus Road type of conversion experience with Jesus? A genuine deal. Can you imagine what that would do to world peace, to, to improve the lives of some Middle Eastern men and women who are following him blindly? It'd be crazy. What if stalwart atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins became Christian? Can you imagine how that would affect the other atheists who look up to them and read their books and, and follow them? It would be massive. I like to think about Hollywood. What if there was a massive revival that happened in Hollywood and, and many of the actors and actresses that, that so shape our culture began to genuinely follow and seek after Christ? Can you imagine what kind of impact that would have on people? Not to mention the movies. Uh, it'd be harder to make explicit movies because you wouldn't have actors and actresses who are willing to act in them. Be crazy. But even as I thought about those examples, even if, even if some of those happened, it probably wouldn't impact your neighbors, your friends, your family that much. I mean, some for sure. So what about some more closer to home grassroots what ifs? Can you imagine what would happen if your whip cracking boss became a Christian? You know who I'm talking about. The guy who, if he, if he changed from being a total jerk at the office, nothing's ever good enough, manipulative, doesn't really care about people. All he cares about is the bottom line. Can you imagine if that guy became a servant leader, became a Christ follower and began to serve the people at the office and encourage, become a godly leader, still striving for success, but doing it in a godly way? Do you think your coworkers would notice that kind of transition? What about this? What about your hell-raising neighbor who uh, calls the HOA every time a piece of landscape is out of place. You know who I'm talking about. I have one. You guys know who I'm talking about. You know, she's threatening to sue over property lines and just a really, really intense neighbor. Can you imagine what would happen if, if she had an authentic, genuine conversion and change of heart? And instead of being the person pointing out everybody's problems, she became the person who was trying to help them solve problems. She started organizing dinners for, for the, the women who had babies, people who were sick, just became a servant among the neighborhood. Do you think your neighbors would notice something like that? I bet they would. What about your dad? There's some of you who have a father who has just never been a churchgoer. He's got an anger problem. He maybe have even been unfaithful to your mom. Can you imagine if that guy, your father, became a Christian? What if he started going to church and reading the Bible with your mom, began to pursue her like he used to when they were dating romantically, began to lay down his life for his family, began to serve you guys, kind of transitioned from this anger-ridden guy to a gentle and servant-hearted man. Do you think that would make a difference in your family? Guys, that's the kind of saw-like conversion that I, get, I have hope for when I read this passage of Scripture. I, I believe that God has the power to change any of the people we just mentioned. I believe that God has the power to change the person that you wrote down, the person that you thought about when we first started this morning. So the Damascus Road experience tells me that God has the power to transform the most unlikely people. The second thing it shows me is that change often happens to people when you least expect it. Change often happens to people when you least expect it. Look again at verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I mean, the timing on this was crazy in a lot of different ways. First of all, can you you imagine the timing for, for Saul? Like I said, this guy is, I mean, he's climbing the ladder. 
He's moving. He's going somewhere fast. He's on the road to success for his career. He's on the road to making a difference in what he wants to do in his life. He's becoming one of the most well-respected Pharisees around. And not only is he the kind of person that nobody expected to be converted, but his opposition to Christianity is, is really public. I mean, he, he's doing it. He's taking a public, such a huge public stand that it would be utterly humiliating for him to switch sides in the middle of it. I mean, and he's not even guaranteed that, that the, the Christian church would accept him in. You know, he, he, he had to have questions about that as he experienced this conversion. Look what he said about himself in Galatians 1 as he was reflecting back. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many in my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So it was bad timing for him. <coughs> it hit him right in the middle of his rise. The other thing I noticed about the, the timing of this is that it was completely out of left field. This transition, notice the word suddenly. It happened suddenly and totally unexpected. See, Saul never links his conversion to any kind of preparatory work of God in his life. He didn't see his conversion as the climax of a long process of God's convicting him of sin or frustrating him with some things going on in his life or scaring him about the reality of hell. Those things all might have happened in an instant, but there was no long process for Saul. The conversion here happened sudden and unexpected. Why do I tell you that? Don't lose hope for those who show no signs of being prepared for conversion. You know, it's a mistake for us to think that our prayers for others are only effective if they have an immediate effect and some kind of openness or interest or spiritual sensitivity to God. Saul was not open. He was not interested and he was not sensitive to the work of God in his life. Totally unexpected. He was utterly closed, utterly convinced that Christianity was untrue and spiritually dead in his sin. He was not, you know, you hear people talk about, oh man, this guy, this person's ripe for the picking, man. He's, he's almost there. He's ready. This was not Paul or Saul. He was not ripe for the picking. In fact, he was the opposite. He was dead, shriveled up. There was not any hope for him. His heart was hard. And what happened to, to Saul was sudden and completely unexpected. And that means the same thing can happen for you. Same thing can happen for the person that you wrote down earlier. We, we need to keep praying, keep speaking the truth in love. So what if the person I'm praying for hasn't been showing any sign of activity of God in their life? What do you do? I mean, I know it can be frustrating. I want to give you just a couple of thoughts, a couple of ideas. The first thing I would do is I would pray for an event to happen. Pray for a supernatural event. You know, a lot of times change happens as a result of a significant emotional event in your life. For Saul, it was a bright light that blinded him. I mean, can you imagine that was pretty, pretty significant, pretty emotional for him. Uh, Josh Hamilton talked about a dream that he had. Pray for a dream. I, I can't tell you how many guys I've talked to that have had just supernatural dreams that have kind of s sparked something for them. You know, I don't, I don't know what you pray for. Maybe you pray that, that God would allow the, the path that they're on to take them to a place of total desperation. Do you care about and love the person that you're praying for enough to say, you know what, whatever it takes, God, I just pray that you would do whatever it takes in their life. So pray for an event. You may want to, this is a, a, a thought, speak and act in faith towards that person. You know, it's real easy to see people for who they are, for the actions that you see in them today, instead of who they could be. Instead of who God could, could do. I was thinking about that with Saul. Can you imagine 
as you notice, this guy was ambitious. The, the very qualities that we talked about that made him unlikely for change, I believe some of them were character traits that God had implanted in him that he would later use to give him the impact that he had. You know, he was probably the, the, the most influential person in my life other than Jesus Christ in terms of my, my spiritual growth. And a lot of that is because of the things that, that God hardwired in him to be ambitious, to be aggressive, to be uh, forward-thinking. And so think about the person you have with, through the lens of faith, through the lens of what they could be if God changed them. Another thing you may want to do is claim a promise for them. Claim a promise. Here's a couple of them. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Claim that promise over your friend. Matthew nineteen twenty six. with men, this is impossible. With, with God, all things are possible. Claim that promise. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within our lives, to him be glory in the church. That power is available to transform. Your, you may want to claim a promise and begin to start praying that promise. And then lastly, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop speaking the truth in love and, and taking advantage of opportunities that God gives you. You may not see outward signs, but that does not mean that God's not moving in their heart. I think about the story. Do you guys remember the story about Lazarus in John 11? Uh, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus and uh, Mary and Martha, uh, a brother of Mary and just a, a good guy and, and he gets sick. And Mary and Martha called Jesus up and said, Jesus, you've got to come. This does not look good. Lazarus is sick. And I love what Jesus said here. And I think it's got huge implications. Here's what he said. It's not on your outline sheet, so you have to just listen. It's in verse 4. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You get that? He said, Lazarus, the sickness is not for death. It's... It is so that I can be glorified. It's so that God can be made glorified. And later, Lazarus actually died. And Jesus came two days later and raised him from the dead. You know, many of you have been praying for years that God would raise someone from the dead, so to speak. You've been praying for their salvation, but there's been a delay. And you may even be thinking that nothing's going to happen. It's too late. Their hearts are too hard. This story reminds me that sometimes God waits so that when he does move, his glory is all the more apparent. You know, we need to trust that when someone that we're praying for isn't showing any signs of, of activity, it's not because God isn't at work. On the contrary, God may very well be at work in their life. God may be allowing them to go down a certain path that will make him glorified even more when they do come to know him. It may bring more people with them when they do. So we don't know why God's doing that. I don't, I don't claim to know why uh, there's been a delay, but I know that God is faithful and I know that God can, do, can move in sudden and unexpected ways. So God has the power to transform the most unlikely person. Second thing, change often happens when you least expect it. The last thing that I want to just show you as we finish this story is that you might be surprised at how God chooses to use you in the process. You might be surprised at how God chooses to use you in the process. Let's just take a look real quick at how the story ends. Remember, we left Saul blind, being led by hand into Damascus. Let's see what happens next. The scriptures are on your outline sheet. I'm going to kind of scan through a couple of them. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Notice, though, it's a disciple. It doesn't say there was a preacher or a pastor or a priest or a real well. It was just a follower of Christ named Ananias. 
And the Lord comes to him and basically says, Ananias, I want you to rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. So he gives him specific instructions. And he says, hey, there's a guy there named Saul and he's praying. By the way, I would be praying too uh, if I were blinded by Jesus going, okay, God, what do you want me to do? God has got his attention. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. But Ananias answered, because he's sane and rational thinking, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call your name. Do you blame him for that? I mean, he says, God, hang on, let me explain the situation to you. I know you probably didn't, didn't catch this, but this is not a good guy. So you got the wrong guy. And, and so what happens? It says, the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So Ananias departed and entered the house and, and he laid his hands on Saul. And he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales falls from Saul's eyes couple of verses later, verse 21, he's baptized into the very church that he's been so adamantly persecuting. Can you put yourself in Ananias' shoes? I mean, he knows. Word has gotten out that this guy is coming to Damascus to wreak havoc on Christians. If I'm Ananias, can I just be honest with you? I will find a way to rationalize, kind of laying low for the next couple of days. I'm just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do my thing privately. I'm going to, you know, pray, but, and probably not feel real guilty about it, but you want to kind of stay out of the way. We've heard rumor about what happened with Stephen. I'm just going to kind of hang low. And then he has this vision. You know, I've had visions before after I've eaten bad burritos, I'd be going, you know what? I probably wasn't the real deal. You know, I'm, I'm probably thinking, uh, of a way to, to rationalize this thing. And, and I don't blame Ananias for, for having a but Lord moment. I mean, have you ever had one of those? Uh, I know you're telling me, but, but Lord, let me explain what's really going on here. You know, I can't blame him for that. I, I believe though that God strategically placed Ananias in Damascus at that time for this moment. And it's okay. Ananias had fear. Ananias had doubts. So God, God handled them fine. He can handle your fears and your doubts too. But I believe part of Ananias' purpose in life was to be there for this transformational moment, to, to commission Saul, to engraft him into the family of God, and to help him take his next step. It's so important as people make this conversion that there are people who are willing to step into their lives and, and help disciple them and connect them and help them to grow. And I believe that's a part of his purpose. And you know what? It's a good thing to search for your purpose. All of us think about that from time to time. What's my purpose in life? Are you open to the possibility that the purpose in your life one of them might be for the very person that you wrote down earlier. To be a beacon of hope for them, to be someone who would speak into their lives, to, to be used by God and their process of coming to know him. Take you back to Kelly, uh, the stripper. Uh, Lisa and I continued to kind of build this relationship with her and uh, really enjoyed her company and, and had a good time getting to know her. And, and she started to ask us some questions. You know, the first question was uh, about our, some, of, some of our lifestyle choices. She, she wondered why we weren't living together. We were dating at the time. And, hey, what's up with that? And so we sort of talked to her about that, about how we, you know, why we made that decision. And 
some of the values that were important to us. And she seemed kind of interested, um, uh, just fascinated more than anything else. And so we continued to get to know her and we would just have a lot of conversations out in the parking lot uh, after work uh, before we were going. And I remember this one conversation in particular, she was actually sharing some things that were making us blush and we were kind of figured out how to get out of it. But at the end of the deal, um, it was on a Saturday night, said, hey, you ought to come check church out. I think it might, it might blow your mind. It might be different than what you expected to be. And she goes, I can't do that. It's too early. And I said, this is Seco. So we do services all day. You can find a time that you can go. So kind of haphazardly, not really expecting a whole lot of, of response. And she decided she'd come. And so Kelly shows up and it's kind of surprising to Lisa and I, but we were like, oh, that's cool. And, and she began to come consistently for the next several months. She started asking us questions about what she heard on the weekend. And it was kind of odd for us. We'd get, get into work and she'd be going, hey, 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 I want to ask you about what, what Pastor Greg said last week. And so we would talk about it a little bit. Didn't know a lot of the answers, uh, but uh, it just happened kind of naturally. And then about three months after she started coming, we had an ocean baptism and she didn't tell us. She didn't tell us what was going on. I just remember going out to the ocean baptism and seeing Kelly walk out into the water and be baptized into the faith, make a public profession of Jesus Christ. And she soon after got out of the industry and uh, the stripping industry. And I talked to her recently and has gotten out of the restaurant industry as well and and, uh, made some major changes in her life. Why do I tell you that? Not to boast about our involvement in that, honestly. Uh, it was it was very natural. It wasn't forced. It just felt like God put us there for that that reason. Here's why I tell you that. If you would have told me, a that I would have a relationship, a friendship with someone who was in that industry, I'd have said you're crazy. I'm just not not that I I had this major massive judgment about. It. I just didn't didn't run in those circles. You're probably thankful for that as your pastor. I didn't didn't hang out there much. <laughs> but then secondly that. God would use me in any way. And trust me, God used other people in her life. This, was, this story is not about Josh. This is about transformation. But that God would even have me a part of, of the process there. I'd have said, you're crazy. That can't happen. You know, you might be surprised at how God wants to use you in the process of change for your friends. Now, there are some of you that are going, sweet. I'm going to the strip club tonight. I'm going to meet someone. I'm going to help them. Not the point. Not the point. Bad idea. Don't go there. So what do we do with today's message? What do we do? I think there's a couple different kinds of people that may be here today. Uh, Some of you are here and you're, you're a lot like Saul. You're in desperate need of change in your life. You may not even know it. But if something doesn't change in your life soon, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You may have been saying things and doing things that have caused pain in the lives of the people that love you the most. The truth is you may not feel like it's possible for you to change. It may be an addiction that, that as Josh Hamilton shared in his testimony, you go, man, I just, it's not possible. I've been fighting it for too long. Maybe you've been doing things your own way and, and you don't have a relationship with, you don't even know what that's about. You know, that's the furthest thing. If, if you'd have thought last night that you'd be sitting in the chair today And thinking about a conversion experience with Christ, you'd have thought, uh, not going to happen. But for some reason today, as we've shared and as we've worshipped together, you've just sensed God's pursuit of you. And I want to tell you that God is pursuing you hardcore. God loves you. God desires to have a relationship with you. And I want to challenge you to respond to him today. Whatever it might be. It may be a relationship that needs transformed. But would you open yourself up? to the power of God. If you've never uh, entered into a relationship with Christ, it's not complicated. You, you acknowledge that you are sinful. 
You acknowledge that you've fallen short and that, that God has made a way for you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, die a horrible death on a cross, and raise again for your sins, for my sins. And through that relationship, through his taking our sins upon him, we can be free. We can have life. We can have a relationship with God. It's just saying, God, I want that. Uh, you may want to say what Josh Hamilton said. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't try anymore. Lord, whatever you want to do, do with me. If that's you, I just encourage you in a couple minutes when we have a response time together, you may want to just go to the cross. You may want to just write, God, I, I surrender to you. Or God, I, I want to be changed. And just take that to him and see if he doesn't do something supernatural in your life. I also believe that there are some of us here who know us all in your life and you've been tempted to give it. You may already have given up. Maybe a name popped into your head today that you haven't thought about in years. Maybe a name popped up that you, it, it may be an ex-spouse or an ex-friend, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, and you thought, no way I'd be used in that. I don't know. I don't know who God brought into your mind. But I want to encourage you, don't give up. Continue to pray for that person. You may even want to take their name and take it to the cross. Say, God, I'm going to keep on praying for this person. I'm going to keep on going for it. And then I think there are a lot of us that probably relate to Ananias. God has called you to do something. You've sensed it maybe through uh, just a feeling or a, a sensitivity to God about something. Maybe you've read it in his word. Maybe somebody's kind of confirmed it. But God's called you to take action. And it might be in the life of someone who is far from God. He may be telling you to, to invite him to coffee, to invite him to, to Starbucks and have, have a, begin a conversation about faith type stuff. It may be something completely unrelated, a risk that God has called you to take. And you've explained it away. Said, but God, but God, you don't understand. And today, God is telling you to trust me and to go. If that's you, I just encourage you to respond to that. Uh, maybe your first step in response is to go to a candle, you know, to just say, God, this is my first step of action. I'm trusting you. I'm lighting this candle and I'm going to follow through on what you're calling me to do. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the story of Saul. God, because the story of Saul gives me hope for change in my life. God, the story of Saul is a story of your power, of your presence in our lives. And Lord, through that power is the ability for change to happen. So God, I pray for the people who are here today who may relate to Saul, who may uh, just be so far from you, God, so even maybe hostile towards your teachings, maybe dead set in our ways. God, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts, Lord, that you would just continue to, to pursue us. Romans says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So would you just pursue us with your kindness and your grace and your mercy? We thank you for it, God. I pray for the people who are here today who sense a calling, sense a leading by you. Would you give us the strength and the courage to follow through? Give us the strength and the courage to follow through. We thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.